Staff recommends the board approve and send to the governor that these inmates have their sentences commuted to one year. There's no discussion. Uh, staff, please call the vote. Alan McCall. Yes, sir. Robert Gilliland. Yes. Adam Luck. Yes. Kelly Doyle. Yes. Larry Morris. Yes. To grant accelerated single stage commutation recommendation to inmates on the possession docket who've received a favorable recommendation by staff, moved by Alan McCall and seconded by Adam Luck, has been carried by a vote of five to zero. Last year, the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board has approved commutation for more than 2,600 Oklahoma inmates, resulting in a significant decline in the number of incarcerated Oklahomans. Commutations, parole, and sentencing reforms have helped Oklahoma shed its title as the top incarceration state in the nation, but its prisons remain overcrowded and still near the top of national rankings. On today's episode of Listen Frontier, we talk with Pardon and Parole Board member Adam Luck about the commutation process, the rise in commuted sentences, and what's next in Oklahoma's continued effort to decrease its prison population. We also hear from journalist Allison Herrera about her recent story that was published by The Frontier about a part of Oklahoma's child neglect laws that has been criticized for its unfair sentencing, particularly regarding women. For The Frontier, I'm Ben Felder, and this is Listen Frontier, a podcast exploring the investigative journalism of the frontier and featuring conversations with those on the front lines of Oklahoma's most important stories. Hi, it's Ben, and if you're listening to this podcast, then there's a good chance you are familiar with the work of the frontier. And that means there is also a chance you financially support our work. We're a nonprofit Oklahoma-based investigative news organization with staff in Tulsa and Oklahoma City, and the generous support of our readers is what makes our work possible. If you aren't familiar with our work, I'd invite you to check it out at readfrontier.org. Like what you read and feel like it's the kind of journalism Oklahoma needs more of, then I'd invite you to consider making a donation. Or you just sharing our work on social media and telling a friend about the frontier would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. You know, it's, uh, it's truly an honor to be here on this historic day um, as we take an important step towards criminal justice reform in our state. You know, today we are implementing the will of the people. I truly believe that. It's November 1st of last year, and Governor Kevin Stitt, not only a year into his first term in office, is doing something that even just a few years ago would have seemed impossible. After recommendations by the Pardon and Parole Board, Stitt approved commutations for more than 400 Oklahoma inmates. You know, back in 2017, uh, Oklahomans voted on the ballot to change the punishment for nonviolent minor drug offenses. In this past session, the legislature passed House Bill 12. It was believed to be the largest single day commutation in U.S. history, and it was happening in a state that had for decades used harsh sentencing laws to fill its prisons to the seams. This reversal from a tough-on-crime stance began years earlier when Oklahoma voters approved a state question to reduce sentencing for low-level property crimes and simple drug possessions. A few months into his first term, Stitt also appointed new members to the Pardon and Parole Board. Adam Luck, who is the chief executive officer of CityCare, a nonprofit organization in Oklahoma City, was named to the board, 
and has been outspoken about the need to rethink the state's system of punishment and prisons. He joined the frontier to talk about his work on the Pardon and Parole Board. So, Adam, last year we saw the Pardon and Parole Board dramatically increase the number of, impro- of approvals and approval rate. And, you know, obviously part of that is there's new people on the board, such as yourself. Um, but what do you credit the increase in approvals to? I mean, what, is, what are some of the big differences in philosophy with the board as it exists now compared to what we saw in the past? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. Um, yeah, there's definitely been a shift, and I think it really started with the election of Governor Stitt. Uh, the Partner Parole Board is one of the few boards that uh, three of the members, so the majority of the members, served coterminous with the governor, and so he had an opportunity to appoint three people right away. And in the process that we went through to be appointed to the board, he made it really clear that his goal was to use this as a mechanism to uh, continue to improve public safety and also address some of the growing problems with our incarceration rate and criminal justice system. So. I think just starting with that is a huge difference. Um, mm-hmm. Most governors don't do that. I think most governors, if you look traditionally at the background of individuals serving on the Pardon and Parole Board, um, have traditionally come from just a few areas of the criminal justice system. And I think he's used this as an opportunity to expand the background and experience and education and, uh, and work of those that are serving on the Pardon and Parole Board, which all of that combined leads to a very different perspective and feel of the Pardon and Parole Board. And uh, I think it started there. Um, so from there, you know, you get to see, yeah, there's there's definitely been a significant increase in the approval in the approval rate, the grant rate is what it's called. So um, this past year was 49% compared to tw- 27% yeah. in 2018. Um, and that's a huge difference. Uh, I think another thing that we all kind of acknowledged was just a significant increase in the number of cases considered. So we, uh, saw a significant number more cases this year than we did in prior years because of all the commutations, all the changes in law, and then just in general, um, we were more efficient in, in reviewing more cases. So I think that also uh, in some ways led to an increase in, in the grant rate. And then, you know, I think finally one of the things that I think is starting to change, we, in the first couple of months, we were there engaged in uh, a day-long training session with the National Parole Resource Center. Mm-hmm. So this team goes around and trains all the, uh, they've been in all 49 states that have pardon and parole boards and trained them on national best practices. And it's very uh, helpful for us to have somebody come in and speak to the difficulties we were experiencing, give us some ideas of things that we could implement that would help us do our work more effectively and more efficiently. And then also I think uh, help us come to terms with some of the struggles we were having in this very difficult work of deciding who's ready to get out of prison or not. And one of the distinctions I found was really helpful was this idea of partner parole boards in their primary function. Are we there to determine how long someone should be punished or are we there to determine someone's suitability for release? Yeah. And I found a tremendous amount of comfort in this conversation because it really gets down to the tension point that we constantly feel. So for example, when someone is sentenced to life in prison, um, that life in prison sentence comes with an opportunity for parole at some point. And so you know, you're sitting here looking at an individual who, yes, committed a, t- a very terrible crime, but uh, you know, here they are, they've been up for parole five times, they come up every three years and they've spent 30 years in prison and you know, they've taken every class that they can and they've gotten their education mm-hmm. and they don't have any misconducts and by any metric we would judge how well they've conducted themselves while, be- while being incarcerated, they've, they've done really well. And, um, and here we are trying to decide, is this person ready to be released? And it's just, it's an incredibly difficult question to answer. 
Um, but I think what's been helpful is is making that distinction that I think our, uh, and I would be on the side of the, the school of thought that says, I, I believe our primary function is to determine whether or not the individual is ready to be released. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't necessarily believe in every case that we're there to retry the case and determine whether or not they've served enough time. Yeah. Um, and that's, that is, um, I think, a new concept uh, in some ways for the Oklahoma Partner Parole Board. It's not how we've always thought. And, and I would even say now it's not how every member thinks. Um, and even there are some cases where that's, that's, a, that's a pretty hard school of thought to adhere to. But I think in general, my interpretation is that when someone is coming before us, they have, they have served the requirements of their sentence. Um, they're legally eligible for parole. And our job is to determine whether or not they are suitable for release. Yeah. So I think all those things combined have led to uh, a definite shift in the Partner Parole Board over the last year. And I've really enjoyed being a part of that work. It's been the hardest work I've ever done in my life, frankly. Um, and there were, you know, the first couple months I wanted to just, I told my wife I wanted to just go, you know, move to the mountains. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, why do we have to be a part of all this? It's, it is difficult sitting there and, and honestly just kind of lamenting all these different cycles and societal ills that we struggle so much with and seeing seeing them on the back end of a system in that way is just it's hard but at the same time i'm really grateful for the opportunity to be there and, and very encouraged by the changes that we've seen and hopeful for the future yeah a lot of aspects there as you just said yeah. a, a couple things that stick out to me one is the the grant rate is mm-hmm. you said 49 percent, it's about mm-hmm. half and so i think you know maybe to casual observers there's a feeling like hey there's this floodgate now yeah. of commutations you're still i mean half are, are still being denied. I mean, so this is still uh, a very deliberative process, um, which is not resulting in, you know, everyone that comes before you is getting a pass. Yeah, it's an incredibly deliberative process. Um, it's a very extensive process. And um, yeah, I mean, there's multiple layers of uh, work that goes into a case, you know, getting before us. And so if it's a nonviolent case, then we get to make the final decision. If it's a violent case, then it goes to the governor. And their team looks at it and ultimately decisions up to the governor. But, I mean, even before they get to us, they've passed through several layers of investigation. We get a full investigative report that averages about 10 pages in the individual's entire criminal history. And so, you know, part of the national best practices and the training that we received was how do you quantify these mitigating factors? So things that we would say are are positive things that make their case uh, better or aggravating factors, things that make it harder for us to decide to let them out. And some of those things are fluid. Some of them, Mm -hmm. some of them are dynamics and some of them aren't, some of them are static, you know? And so taking into account all these different factors, I mean, you could list out easily 30 different factors related to one individual's case. And, you know, how do you weigh all those things out? And so we're in the process of implementing um, a a system that would actually help us quantify some of those things and weight some of those things, and then ultimately come to a decision and see at least have a, a general starting point for where this person is is headed based on some of those dynamic and static factors, those mitigating factors and aggravating factors. But all that to say, it's uh, even even with all that investigation, even with all that work, even with all that analysis, at the end of the day, it's just it's it's still a risk. Yeah. I think with every individual, it's still a risk. And the unfortunate part with putting so many people um, in prison in Oklahoma is that we're forced to make a much riskier decision. Hmm. on the back end that is actually far costlier to the public and to the individual and to their families and provides far worse outcomes, honestly. And, uh, and is and at the end of the day is much riskier to make that decision on the back end. Are they ready to get out versus doing that analysis on the front end and asking, should they be in prison yeah. at all? Or is there a better alternative? Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah. And this is also a product of, a, you know, a shift in thinking here in Oklahoma, you know, a shift in thought. Um, yep. And as you talk about a, a new governor that comes in, and I think what's interesting about that is, I, you know, I would imagine, um, and as someone who covered the, the gubernatorial race uh, last year um, and was on the trail with candidates, you heard about this issue a lot mm-hmm. in traveling to every corner of the state. You yep. heard individuals say, you know, our... You know, our number one ranking in incarceration is something that we've got to address, not just because it looks bad per se, but also because it's impacting communities and especially in some, you know, some rural communities and those that are struggling with other other challenges. And so um, if you're a candidate traveling across state, you're hearing that. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then state comes into office right after, um, you know, Fallon. Yep. you know, had, had granted the, the release of, um, I don't remember the exact number, yeah, but, but a large, 32. a large number. Yeah. Um, and in many ways I thought was like the best press she'd gotten in her eight years. And it came yeah. in the last month of mm-hmm. office. Yep. I think you're a new governor coming in. You're aware of that. Right. And yep. so there's a shift in conversation. It seems like politics is kind of caught up to this a little bit. I think so. Um, and, and this is the, this is part of that result, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think we just got to be honest that in general elected politics, uh, positions of elected leadership aren't necessarily incentivized to take substantive positions on controversial issues. Mm-hmm. They're just not. I think, I think in general positions of elected leadership are incentivized to take positions where the public winds have already begun to move. And um, I credit Governor Stitt for not just capitalizing on what I would say was a growing public sentiment in support of criminal justice reform, but leveraging that to actually lead the community in conversations that we have yet to have. And I, I think he's done a really great job at that. Um, and I think you know he's leveraged more political capital in his first year as governor on this issue than, I mean, any governor in recent history. Um, and this is his this is his window. You know, mm-hmm. this is that honeymoon period where he's he's going to target the top things that he really wants to get done. And he's made very clear that this is one of the things he really wants to get done. And and I credit Governor Stitt for for doing that. Yeah. At the same time, though, I mean, you you talk about risk. It, I mean, it's a risk if this. Yeah. If this doesn't work out, if there are cases that don't appear that you guys did your due diligence mm-hmm. um, and an incident happens, that jeopardizes this this yes. movement, right? It does. And I think we've been really honest, uh, I mean, at least in conversations I've been able to have, that um, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I think to pretend that it's not is, is naive at best. And the reality is that some of these individuals are going to commit crimes again. That's, that is absolutely unfortunate. I pray um, and certainly carry the weight of that reality with me every day. Um, and it is, and it's a, a weight that I know Governor Stitt carries as well. But the reality is, is that is going to happen. And our job is to, as best we can, mitigate that risk um, while also balancing the reality that we have far too many people in prison in Oklahoma and to the best that we can start to consider what are some ways that we can prevent individuals from being incarcerated in the first place? And yes, it extends far beyond just the interaction someone has in a courtroom to, yes, our education system and the foster care system and individuals experiencing homelessness and all these different societal ills are wrapped up to, into it and, and it's hard to untangle at some point. But I think, uh, I think we've been honest about the fact that it's probably going to happen. Our hope is that we mitigate that, that we, as much as we can, do due diligence throughout this whole process to identify individuals that are ready, those that aren't, provide those that aren't a path forward to to get ready, and um, and then provide them with the resources on the back end, you know, reentry services, helping them get an ID, helping remove barriers to employment and transportation and treatment, um, all the things that we know are barriers to successful reintegrations back into the community. So all of that combined, you know, it, it leaves us, I think, hopeful for the future. And if in the event something like that does happen, 
when it does happen, I think that we'll, you know, continue to have conversations about how we got to where we are today. What are the things that we're going to have to do differently to keep us from, from staying here where we are now? Yeah. You, you've credited an adoption of evidence-based practices and, and, and the streamlining of the process for the increase in approvals. And you've spoken mm-hmm. to that a little bit already, but yeah. what exactly does that look like for you guys? Yeah. So, you know, the National Parole Resource Center has a set of 10 best practices that they walk state pardon parole boards through. And, and really, they just say, all right, pick a couple to, to tackle. So if, if you've got, you know, the other part we haven't really talked about is that four out of the five members started in February of last year. Uh-huh. So there's there's really, and the other one who's been there had only been there for a year and a half. So we've, we've got almost a completely new board within the last two years. And so we were able to just come in, you know, without really much baggage and say, what are the best practices and how can we start to implement those? And, and we've, you know, you hear people talk a lot about what are the, what are the easiest ones to start with? And those are kind of the ones that we focused on. So one of the biggest ones that I think has been helpful in providing what I think is so critical for this process is clarity, clarity, both for the public, you know, you've mentioned the risk and people asking questions and making these hard decisions. I think it's so important that the public be brought along in this process to understand and see with clarity, what decisions are we making and what factors are we considering when we make these decisions? And I think it's also very important for individuals who are coming before the pardon and parole board eligible for parole they're doing what they need to be doing and they're still being told no we need to tell them why and we need to give them a path forward if our goal is to rehabilitate individuals who are incarcerated and prepare them for release into the community but we're not telling them what exactly they need to do to get there to me that doesn't feel like a productive system yeah Um, and so one of the things one of the first things we did was implement um, parole denial reasons so uh, it was voluntary it wasn't required there was actually a bill a couple years ago that would have required the pardon and parole board to do this, but we, we went ahead and did it. And so we listed out, you know, five reasons. And so now for every parole denial, uh, we'll go down. And if it's a no, we'll say no B, you know, and B oh. is a common one because it's uh, misconducts. And so one of the things we look for is for an individual when they come up for parole to try and have a year of clear conduct. Now, if it's like a certain, you know, there's different classes of misconducts. Class X is the most serious. Class A, you know, it can be a variety of different things. And so it's not a blanket statement, but we do look at it a little bit. Um, so I think that has been really helpful for individuals. And some of the feedback we've gotten is that it's been helpful f- for case managers. It's been helpful for the individuals incarcerated to have an idea of what they could do differently when they come up again next year or for a violent offense when they come up in three years. Um, another thing we've done is looked at, um, we looked at, you know, we do, so let's see, last in February, we did 158 interviews over the course of four days and um, on average that was a that was a high month on average we do about 60 Um, and these interviews used to be done in person they would actually we would uh, my understanding was the partner parole board would meet at different facilities over the course of the number of days and sometimes they would transport individuals to come and and do interviews and now we do them all electronically so we all we do them all by video and um, the audiovisual system that we had last year it was just it made it really really difficult to hear individuals, it was difficult to see them. Some facilities it was really good, some facilities it wasn't. You know, some facilities it was like in the background you could see like a kitchen huh. and people were walking by. Um, some facilities, you know, the camera was really far away and you couldn't even make out their face. Some facilities it was, you know, crystal clear and you could see them and hear them really well. And it made it really difficult to standardize what I would say is probably the most important 10 minutes that person's had in yeah. a really long time, yeah. especially when you talk about freedom hinging you talk about how risky some of these decisions can be it's 
really important that we get that right. And so um, we were, you know, really interested in standardizing that process and improving that process. And we worked really closely with the Department of Corrections to implement that over the course of five months. And uh, we have. So now we've got, you know, a standard policy for what the camera frame is, who's in the camera frame. Um, we have a, a completely new audiovisual system that has streamlined this whole process and it's made it really easy for us to see and hear consistently individuals um, and it's helped us get through more of these and I think made this process fair both for the individual and for you know the victims and for the families that are there in support because um, really the reality is that it should be as if we're sitting in front of them and I think yeah. that that's um, that's been helpful as well and then the last thing I'll mention is just uh, there's been so many changes in law recently that have opened up what once was a very rare process called a commutation. Uh Um, I think in in 2018, there was only a couple hundred uh, commutation packages that the Pardon and Parole Board even reviewed. And um, in 2019, uh, I mean, it was, I mean, just the number of commutations that we considered, uh, let's see, number of commutations increased to 3,332 in 2019 from 634 in 2018. And all that had to do with a lot of these changes that were made uh, as a result of state question 780 and 781, other changes to different um, property crime statutes and drug drug statutes. So uh, all of a sudden you have all these individuals who are incarcerated in Oklahoma for crimes that if they'd committed today, they wouldn't go to prison for. And so the commutation was the one avenue of relief that they had. And so, you know, everybody started filling out commutation applications and all of a sudden we're looking at, you know, a thousand, two thousand of these applications that are waiting to be reviewed. So we really went through um, a pretty rigorous process to streamline how we review those applications, when we review them, you know, batching them in terms of crimes that uh, the individual committed or what they were incarcerated for. And uh, I think that's helped us really get through those commutation applications and clear out that backlog and um, provide relief most quickly to those individuals who were still incarcerated for a crime that was no longer requiring incarceration. Yeah. And we've seen, so earlier this year, the state's prison population dipped below 25,000 people. That's the first time in a decade it, mm-hmm. it's been that low. Yes. And, you know, obviously your work is, is part of the reason for that. I mean, you talk about changes in laws, but uh, your work is involves the release of inmates. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a, a recent Tulsa World article, um, Uh, you had said this and quote, I think what that shows is we can do as much as we can on the back end in terms of policy reforms and reforms within the pardon and parole board. And as much as we can work to apply earned credits, but if we don't change what's happening on the front end, we'll never catch up End quote. So once again, I mean, your work is on the back end. I mean, that's where your Mm -hmm. power lies. Uh, But you talk about this importance on the front end. And so what are some of those front end strategies that you know, you would like to see developed because you still come from a position of, of knowledge on this issue, even though you're at, you're at the back end. What, mm-hmm. what should the state be um, continuing to, to focus its efforts on when it comes to those front end strategies? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I have had the privilege of serving in, in different capacities over the last six years and looking at how Oklahoma can do this differently and what other states have done. And, and I think many of us recognize that there is only so much you can do on the back end. And at some point, you've got to address a couple of key things on the front end. And, and in my mind, those really uh, come down to statutory changes related to all of our criminal code. So not just nonviolent drug-related offenses, but violent offenses as well. Um, deciding whether or not the individual should be going to prison in the first place, which leads to the second thing, which is diversion. So we've got to invest in programs outside of just incarceration. And we, we know now there is a there is a very solid evidence base that doesn't just suggest, but proves that alternatives to incarceration for certain individuals, not only do they provide better outcomes, but they're far less costly. 
Um, and so I think that's the second thing. And then the third thing is just, you know, investment. It's going to take resources. So you look at states like Texas who, you know, in 2005 started doing all three of those things, yeah. incentivizing the creation of diversion programs for counties in a, uh, that had over 100,000 in population, investing money in those diversion programs, um, changing statutes related to drug, drug laws, violent crimes, property crimes. And, you know, here they are 15 years later. And uh, a couple of years ago, they had their lowest violent crime rate and property crime rate they've had since... 1968. You know, they've closed, I think they're up to almost nine prisons that they've closed at this point. They've estimated they've saved and averted uh, costs of close to $3 billion, you know, and they were looking at building new prisons yeah. in 2005. So, and, and that's just one example. There are so many states around the country that have wrestled with the same questions that we're wrestling with right now and addressed it on the front end and back end all, at all points of the system, which really, you know, my last point is that we've got to have a long-term strategy. Uh-huh. I think we often get caught up in this year-to-year legislative cycle where we try to get as much done as we can, and it's too much. It's too much. The political pressures are too strong, and the positions we all stake out you know, are, too, are yeah. too closely held for us to actually sit at a table and talk about what's the long-term plan. And I think if we remove those factors um, and, and insulate a policy process from those political factions and uh, pressures that we could actually talk about what is our goal so we've, we've heard governor Snit talk about getting to the national average so if our goal is to get to the national average what are the policies front end back end that would actually get us to the national average because we can measure that uh-huh. we can say all right if we change this law based on the last five years of intake data that means that our incarceration rate would decrease by this much you know we've we've done that we've worked with Pew Charitable Trust and the Crime and Justice Institute to do that kind of analysis. Um, so I think if we put together a long-term plan and then we measure it, right? So, so many of these stakeholders, we end up on opposite sides of an issue, but I think we would all agree that we all want to improve public safety. Nobody wants public safety to get worse. I think we can all acknowledge that there's an issue in Oklahoma. Like we've got to do something with our incarceration rate. And I think we could all agree that to the extent that there's an option that's less costly than incarceration, we'd be willing to explore that if the outcomes are there. And so I think if we all sat down and got around a table, which which has happened in the past, and talked about, all right, what are our metrics by which we would judge if we're improving public safety? So can we agree that measuring the violent crime rate or the property crime rate would be an important metric? And could we look at the last five years and see what the trend line was and say, all right, as long as we're within a standard deviation of where we would have been otherwise, we can call that maintaining or improving public safety. But if it hits below this point, then we're going to define that as public safety getting worse, and we're going to pause there. But if it, if it maintains or improves, then we're going to move to year two's reforms, which is this set of bills, state questions, um, agency changes, policy changes, changes to earn credits. Same thing in year two, measure public safety outcomes, move on to year three. So in my mind, you know, having worked on this for several years over the past, served on several task forces, walked through this process in the legislature several times, I just am convinced that that's the only way that you address the kind of system-wide changes necessary for us to actually make substantive change in our criminal justice system. And I'm hopeful that, you know, I know that Governor Sitt knows that and his team is working on that. And I'm hopeful that at a certain point soon, we'll be able to sit down and have that conversation about what that long-term plan is. I just I don't think we'll get there doing it, you know, in year to year legislative cycles, nor do I think that's the best way to improve public safety. Yeah. Well, a lot of work left to do, but it, it bears repeating a lot of work that's already been done, yes. especially this last year. And yeah. um, I, I keep thinking about 
four-day interview sessions for yourself. That's uh, that's got to be a grind. Yeah, it is. It is. But again, I, I'm so grateful to be there, and I think it's, I think it's really helped animate and inform the way that um, I get to talk about this. And I think it's been a really great opportunity to invite members of the community. You know, they're open meetings, mm-hmm. and anybody can come and see these. And I think it's been really helpful to, again, invite people to come and experience it along along with me and see what it's like uh, because. Like so many other things we talk about, it's a community issue, and, and it deserves a community response. And I think for us to, to actually respond as a community, we've got to know what's actually going on. Yeah. Well, Adam, thanks for your time and sharing about the work. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Oklahoma's Enabling Child Abuse Law was passed with the intent of reducing the number of cases of child neglect and abuse. However, in addition to the number of cases actually growing, one impact of this law is that mothers will sometimes be punished with harsher sentences than the man who is the perpetrator of the child abuse. Journalist Allison Herrera recently explored this disparity with a gripping story that was published by The Frontier this month, which you can find at readfrontier.org. Allison recently joined me over the phone to discuss her story. We're joined now by Allison, who's on the line with us from Minnesota. And Allison, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about this story. Um, this was a story that got a lot of attention, um, and it ran on the frontier, and uh, there was a radio version and some videos, so some great multimedia storytelling here. But your story, um, I guess just to start with, I mean, this is, this is a, a serious and, and a sad story on multiple fronts, right? We're talking about a, a case of child abuse. Um, so there's a, there's a child involved in this, um, you know, a, a sad story when you take a look at the mother's situation, um, particularly as it compares to the, the sentencing that the, the father received. And so uh, can you start by just giving us kind of a quick overview of what are these laws and, and what, is, what are we seeing as the result here in Oklahoma? Well, so the law is known as enabling child abuse. That's the technical term of it. It's um, 840, um, 8, 8, um, 843, I'm sorry, 853B is the technical term. I, let me check on that and um, make sure that I'm right. Yeah. Uh, so, but it's commonly known as failure to protect. And the law has got a lot of attention, um, you know, in the last few years, particularly last fall when uh, uh, Tondaleo Hall, mm-hmm. who received a 30-year sentence, she was 19 when she was arrested. Um, her boyfriend, Robert Braxton, was accused of, um, was convicted of, you know, abused their two children, um, leaving one of them with several broken bones. But um, Hall was given, um, excuse me, she was given 15 years behind bars, and I believe that um, the abuser, Robert Braxton, received a lesser sentence. So the two cases that I focused on were um, were also similar cases. One, um, the woman's name, Clorinda Archuleta, she, um, her and her boyfriend, um, uh, um, Joshua Ray, were both, um, you know, they had newborn twins. They were struggling with um, addiction issues, were like recovering um, from heroin addiction, were both on methadone. And, you know, uh, as Joshua's mother said, you know, they were really doing their best. And I think that they were, uh, by all accounts, really overwhelmed. Um, and it's not clear 
who did what to the child, to the two twins. Um, but it turns out that they were both charged, arrested and convicted on child neglect and permitting child abuse. Um, the thing is that uh, Joshua Ray received 25 sentences, 20, 25 years um, as a sentence, and Clorinda Archuleta received three, um, three life sentences. And she feels like there are several reasons for this, and this is a trend that I've seen in cases that I've looked that I looked at when I did my reporting. That um, she took a blind plea um, in hopes for a better outcome, um, and I think one thing that struck me um, just reading over the court transcripts is that she didn't. Um, the prosecutor and several people who testified um, during the hearing said that she wasn't sorry enough, that she didn't appear to be remorseful enough during her, um, during her statements. And so, you know, several, some, uh, people that I spoke with who are experts in areas of, um, you know, have practiced law and are, um, familiar with, um, victims of domestic violence. To be clear, it's not really proven that Clorinda was a victim of domestic violence, but, you know, she was certainly, um, very stunned by um, even being charged with these with these crimes. Um, felt like, you know, the like as she said, the floor was just dropping out from underneath her, and so she was just really stunned and didn't really know how to react. So I guess the question I would ask is that: so are these women being judged on how sorry they are, um, how how quote unquote good of a mother they are? And I think that's so. That is one of the things that I've seen in, in reading these cases that, that there is a judgment on, you know this mother, this woman who is supposed to, you know, be the caretaker, supposed to protect the children. Um, and while at the same time, you know, maybe experiencing some incredible life challenges, um, as Clorinda and, in Elizabeth Crafton's case, you know, she received a 20 year sentence while her, uh, boyfriend who was convicted and it was proven that he was the abuser of the child, um, got 11 years. And when I was talking with, um, the district attorney who prosecuted that case, um, there was uh, a belief, I think one of the jurors had said to him that, um, that, uh, Chris Good, the abuser, um, was just so young. You know, he didn't deserve yeah. to go to prison. Whereas, um, you know, during Elizabeth's jury trial, um, which came first, um, you know, she was. It was deemed that you know she she was just as responsible as he was. And again, she was facing a lot of challenges. You know, struggling with um, some po poverty, and also she alleges some domestic abuse. So. Again, there's several factors. You know, there's um, there's their socioeconomic situation. There's um, the situation in the home. There's also some domestic abuse involved. So all of these factor in, and you know, unfortunately, I think women get um, women get seen as you know, again, they're supposed to be the protectors in the case. They're supposed to be seen as the one who is you know supposed to do anything at all costs to protect the children. And yes, that is true. But at the same time, um, I don't think. I, I, I don't think that they should be able to, I don't think that the sentencing is on par with that. Yeah. And obviously, you know, each case has its own unique set of circumstances. Um, but, but what really strikes me about this is, you know, here in Oklahoma, I mean, we've seen decades of, um, of mass incarceration, largely through 
um, harsh sentencing laws. Um, and there's been an effort in recent years to reverse that. We've seen the prison population decrease over the last year through um, quite a few commutations and uh, changing the sentencing laws. But here it seems to be that we still have this kind of holdout from an era where the criminal justice system doesn't show much grace, um, particularly when you have some women who may be victims themselves um, and that could mm-hmm. challenge their own ability to to speak up or, or, or put in a situation where they just don't know what to do. Did exactly. You get into, well, yeah. I think one thing um, Liz Charles, who I spoke with, um, who works for the Oklahoma Women's Coalition, she said that um, you know women sometimes it gets used against them when women don't. Um, wh- sorry, I'll go back. Um, she said that some women are too afraid to testify against the man who um, who has done the abuse, and so therefore then that means that they get a longer sentence because they have refused to testify or refused to cooperate. Um, You know, one thing I wanted to mention, you said um, just that, um, you know, that these cases are seen in a harsher, uh, you know, that there's really not little movement. And and yes, that is true. And I think um, people on the other side would say, well, that's because it it involves a child and it it involves child abuse. And and I I think that's what makes reporting these um, stories so complicated is that the victims are these, you know, vulnerable, um, young, you know, just in both cases, not even able to speak for themselves, you know, and here you have this adult that is, you know, hurting them. And so, yes, I mean, on the face of it, these are terrible crimes, terrible situation. But, you know, Liz Charles, um, again, said, you know, taking the mother out of that situation is often can can lead to even more harm. Um, So and also, you know, with the pardon and parole board, you know, I think it's in a case by case basis. Certainly a lot of people that are wanting criminal justice reform see um, Tundaleo Hall's commutation um, and her being released from prison as being a positive sign. However, um, I've noticed, um, you know, in the past few months as I've checked the pardon and parole docket, there's been a few um, failure to protect cases that have been on the docket, and those have not, those commutations haven't been granted. So uh, I I agree with you. I think that there has, there needs to be, I I think a lot of people are saying there needs to be more recognition that the sentencing um, guidelines for these cases need to be overhauled. I think even Jerry Askins, one of the co-authors of the Failure to Protect Law, um, in two, uh, you know, which has been on the books now for 20 years, said that sh- you know sentencing, def- de- you know, there there should be some looking at the sentencing guidelines for these cases. Yeah, I guess what also strikes me too is as this law originated in a time when um, maybe we don't we didn't quite understand domestic violence in the way that we do today. Um, or I mean, at least maybe here in Oklahoma to where, um, you know, I think for a person who's not experiencing the thought is if a woman is being abused and her child is being abused, you know, they think in their own context, well, I would just say something, I would protect my child. And that's a, that's a really complicated situation to be in, to protect a child when you yourself is also a victim. I I also Mm -hmm. think, I mean, as we're talking about here, we're, I I think you're obviously not making the case and, and using some of these examples that, uh, some of these mothers aren't immune to responsibility in this. Um, but once again, held up compared to the the father in many of these cases, it's just striking that, you know, the woman would get, you know, such a harsh sentence compared compared to the man. I don't know if you explain those different situations that 
you know, a jury or mm-hmm. a judge may see. Absolutely. I, I think that's one of the biggest cr- criticisms is, you know, different standards um, for the same crime. Um, I, I want to go back to what you uh, what you said about um, domestic violence. I think you're right. At the time that this law was put on the books, um, Jerry Askins told me that domestic violence wasn't even considered a felony. It was considered a misdemeanor. So you know, there has been some, there has been more awareness about domestic violence, I think, in the state. But, you know, Oklahoma's position um, in overall in the nation per capita, it's still in the top 20. Um, It's not in the top five anymore. Um, But I think I cited in one story that um, I think it was in the Elizabeth, in Elizabeth Crafton story, um, I noted the statistic that, excuse me, um, that Funding for domestic violence programs in the state has remained flat because they rely on federal money from one from the Violence Against Women Act, which has not been reauthorized. And I cited a statistic from the um, it's a national domestic violence network where they do a census every year um, for every for every state to look at what services are offered on a given day and. In 2018, in Oklahoma, 131 women were turned away from domestic violence shelters in one day. Um, yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a really startling statistic when you look at the state in a per capita basis. So I think um, a lot of advocates are calling for more awareness about, you know, the complicated, uh, how um, complicated domestic violence situations are. Like you said, you can't just oh pick up and leave a person. I think. Um, one woman in one of my stories said, you know, it's hard to leave your abuser. Some of these women live in small towns. Everybody knows everybody. What kind of services are offered to you in a town like Miami or Commerce or, you know, you know, Lawton, for that example? You know, we we live in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, but like, you know, where there are more services. But you think about when you go out state, what services are available to women if they're trying to escape an abusive situation? Yeah. You know, another statistic from your story that really jumped out to me was, you know, at the end of the day or, at the, or the, the origin of this law is obviously trying to protect children and, and decrease child abuse. But you show that the statistics show that substantiated child abuse claims have actually increased since the law was, was put on the books. And so it doesn't seem like it's, it's having that kind of impact that maybe it was designed to, designed to have. And I'm glad you pointed out that. And I asked um, DH, Oklahoma DHS about that. And the woman that I spoke with said um, that, you know, maybe it's because there's more increased awareness, but increased awareness or not, you know, um, the number is the number, you know, I mean, over the last, you know, seven, you know, the last decade, um, child abuse has, it stayed, it's been either like stayed flat, which is at a high level, or it has increased, you know, substantiated child abuse claims. So I guess then I would ask um, lawmakers and, you know, district attorneys, is this law really working to protect children? Yeah. Well, finally, I want to ask you in doing this reporting and, and talking to, you know, several people, have you gotten any indication on what the appetite of lawmakers may be? I mean, is this something that as it gets more attention, do we expect that it might be addressed? I mean, because I think we are entering, you know, not to say that what Oklahoma has done over the last couple of years with, you know, reduced mandatory minimums for, for drug possession and, and the increase in commutations was easy. I'm not saying that, but, you know, you start with the easier ones. And now we're kind of starting to look at laws and cases that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, you know, take a little bit more heavy lifting. 
Um, have, do you have any indication that this is something that is getting a closer look at, uh, at law, lawmakers and policymakers? I think what you said is right on that um, policymakers like Oklahoma Women's Coalition, the ACLU of Oklahoma, and Oklahoma, the um, Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, and Another Chance uh, Justice Project in uh, Tulsa—they're all—they all, you know, like you said, started out with these um, easier cases, you know, e cases that the Pardon and Parole Board would look at and find find an easier time of granting um, parole commutation or, or you know, sending on the, to the governor for a pardon. However, people that I spoke with in all of those areas say that it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So I think they're still just testing the waters a little bit. I know last year um, there was, um, I think it was Representative West had put forth a bill to change some of the language in the um, failure to protect law. Um, that was tabled, and then an interim study was done in the fall of 2019. And I think what they're doing now is they're trying to put, they're trying to revise that, and they're, I think they're going to put it forth in the legislature again. But I'm not sure. So again, it's just a, on a case by case basis. And I think one criticism that I have heard from all of those policymakers is that one of the biggest holdouts is the district attorneys association. Um, they feel like district attorneys don't really have an appetite to change this law. And they see that as a problem. Yeah. Well, this is a, a, a complex issue, definitely. But, um, you know, changing, bringing change to complex issues, you know, start with, uh, you know, putting a, a detailed spotlight on it, which, uh, which you've done in this piece. And uh, I really thank you for your time and discussing it with us. Thank you so much, Ben. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Listen Frontier. I'll be back next week for another episode, which will include a closer look at the 2020 race in Oklahoma's 5th Congressional District. I invite you to check out the work of the Frontier at readfrontier.org. Like what you see? Then consider making a contribution. It's how we fund our work. Got a story idea or tip? You can find contact info at readfrontier.org. Thanks for listening. See you next week.